All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. Welcome to Your Brain on Science. Today, Sarmin and I are going to discuss a recent paper titled Bespoke Library Docking for Serotonin to A Receptor Agonist with Antidepressant Activity by Kaplan et al. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Um, we're going to talk about a really cool paper that was published just a few weeks ago. It's going to cover a lot of stuff. Uh, all the way from structure to function relationships to receptor configuration to behavioral pharmacology. So there's a lot. Um, but bear with us. We're going to try to simplify it all for you and really hit the important parts because this was a pretty cool paper. And you guys might have heard um, some headlines about it. Honestly, there were uh, some articles out, I think. <laughs> it's definitely got implications for, you know, a lot of stuff in the field right now. And it's by a group that always stays publishing, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. But... I know it's uh, through the Roth group and collaborators, and they do a lot of stuff with different serotonin uh, agonists and uh, docking and a lot of structural stuff. And it's been really, really interesting to follow what comes out of their lab. So for people that aren't like uh, familiar with pharmacological terms, um, agonists, so we're talking about the serotonin 2A receptor. um, And we talk about the serotonin 2A receptor because classical psychedelic drugs are agonists at this receptor. And agonist uh, is a drug that's going to increase the activity um, at that cell at that receptor by by docking at that receptor or binding to that receptor. And while we're defining agonists, I think it's also important to define antagonists because that's also mentioned throughout this paper. Mm-hmm. And that is basically when a compound molecule, drug, whatever, binds to the receptor, but it doesn't activate it. So it doesn't produce any effects besides just binding in that or docking that receptor mm-hmm. so first things first i uh, just want to talk about the main goal of the paper and that's uh, basically to identify a number of chemotypes or chemical backbones that aren't typically looked at and see uh, the affinity so how they bind to the different serotonin receptors And then also how they're activating it to produce behavioral effects and potentially Mm -hmm. antidepressant effects. So they talk about a lot of this in the introduction and their um, methods are kind of throughout the paper. But basically, uh, considering that six-membered rings are a common structure in a lot of FDA-approved drugs, they wanted to look at specifically what is called a tetrahydropyridine or THP, as we're going to call it moving forward. Um, So THPs are less investigated class of six-membered nitrogen rings. So actually, lysergic acid diethylamide, or LSD, contains a THP, as well as a few other cancer drugs. And so being that this paper is focused on um, serotonin 2A and potential therapeutic effects related to psychedelics or non-psychedelic agonists, um, LSD is a good example of what contains a THP that they kind of base this off of. Yeah. So they wanted to find uh, THPs that could be easily made with selectivity for the 2AR over other receptor types. 
Yeah, and we're going to focus a lot on this uh, 2A receptor, the serotonin 2A receptor. And it's important because the main goal of this paper was to find selective drugs um, that have therapeutic effects through 2A receptor activation without any of that, any of those like side effects from activation at other receptors, including the 5-HT2B receptor, which is implicated in cardiac issues. So like a little note here, there's a lot of... Um, there's been a lot of talk, you know, like some psychiatrists and, and people in the medical field specifically have been, you know, interested in these results that we've been getting with, with psychedelic drugs and all of these therapeutic outcomes. But people are interested in taking sort of the trip out of psychedelics, right? Like, so if these drugs have some sort of a therapeutic benefit, there's been a lot of interest um, in taking out the sort of qualitative experience, right? Having a trip, which I will have a conversation probably more down the line in, in other episodes, but is it a combination of the biological uh, changes and the psychological changes that occur when you have a trip? Or is it purely biological? Or is it purely, you know, psychological and having to do with the phenomenology of the exper uh, experience? The answer is, is we don't know, because there isn't enough data the basically trip optimization, right, is mm -hmm. kind of what we're talking about here. And so can you take these compounds and maybe make them more accessible for people who shouldn't have a trip or maybe make it so the trip's just a little bit less? So for LSD, right, 12 hours, it's a long time. Intense, yeah. Intense. Um, so maybe just thinking about it like that, too, is interesting. And we're going to have a kind of two-part structure equals function series right after this week so this paper is actually a really good uh example of why this is all so important and we're gonna mm -hmm. talk about it more in the context of like tryptamines and phenethylamine psychedelics which are two more commonly known classes of the drugs so uh this paper is a good way to kind of like you know what your noodle get into it <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Okay, sorry. So let's get back to the paper. I just think that's like such an interesting uh, line of thinking. And what you just said is a very different perspective that I hadn't thought of. But, you know, the accessibility portion of, of all of this, the idea behind this, it's that's interesting. Um, okay, so back to the paper. Um, so we definitely will not get into the nitty gritty of the methods because they are extensive and it's pretty impressive. Um, but we will talk about some of the main points just to emphasize how much work goes into something like this, right? It's very, very comprehensive. Uh, so in this paper, they start off by using computational and empirical screening strategies. Um, and this is of a pre-existing sort of library of molecules that exist, of chemicals that exist, right? Um, and this ultimately led them to identifying 75 million, yep, million potential compounds. Um, so they screened these millions of compounds using 5-HT2A receptor models. Um, that they essentially built using a thousand different templates. And they even mentioned in the paper that at the time that they started this study, there wasn't um, a clear structure of the 5-HT2A receptor. So this part is pretty impressive. Um, each library molecule that they had screened had an average of 92 confirmations and 23,000 orientations. So 92 different ways that they could sort of sit and then 23,000 different ways that they could move themselves around and orient themselves, which is crazy. That's a lot of different combinations. Um, but through several levels of analyses and clustering and a bunch of other stuff that they did, um, they synthesized, they ended up synthesizing only 17 of those, which is really cool. You've narrowed it down. <laughs> Insane. Like, 
how do you do that? <laughs> Every time I read a <laughs> no, paper, I know. Like I'm, this, like, I'm just like, this paper was crazy. I wonder how many years. Hey, if anyone from this paper is listening, how many how many years? I'd be so interested in knowing. <laughs> yeah, it's like amazing work. Yeah. Um. So yeah, like Zarmin mentioned, like that's to only synthesize 17 out of 75 million hits. <laughs> like. <laughs> Wow. Um, so then basically what they did is they got these 17 compounds and they tested them in different assays. So we mentioned uh, agonism and antagonism. So to figure out which compounds are agonists or antagonists, they used a radial uh, ligand binding assay and the calcium mobilization assay, which basically is allowing scientists or researchers to see how the different compounds bind to the different receptors of interest or displace known drugs from that receptor. So this mm-hmm. paper focuses on LSD displacement. So basically the LSD is radial labeled and then they give the cells the other compound and see if the cell or if the the novel compound or compound of interest is pushing away the LSD from the spot on the receptor and then they can measure uh, the percent bound of each. And so that's kind of saying like, okay, so for the 2A receptor or the 2B receptor or the 2C receptor, um, LSD binds to all of those. So if a novel compound or compound of interest is displacing LSD, that those also um, are binding. Yeah, but yeah. it's important to note that binding doesn't mean activation, right? So that's why they do calcium mobilization. And this uh, is showing that um, calcium, which is a downstream signal of serotonin 2a activation and gq gpcr signaling uh so if the potential compound is causing calcium mobilization it's thought to be have some agonist activity or if it blocks calcium mobilization of serotonin it's thought to be an antagonist yeah and so they found four compounds out of these 17 that had some optimal agonist or antagonist activity at the 2a or 2b receptor um, yeah. But I think what they found was that out of these compounds, the four, most of them had activity at the 2B receptor, which was not really what they wanted. Yeah. And we, we mentioned 2B receptor activation has been implicated in cardiac issues, amongst other things. So that's definitely not optimal. Um, so to optimize the selectivity of these compounds, so how selective, uh, selectively they sought out that 5-HT2A receptor, um, they decided to look at a specific analog, and I'm definitely going to pronounce this wrong, but it was azandol analogs. Um, they found that uh, small nitrogen substitutions provided the greatest level of agonist activity. They also, so they identified two compounds at, the, from, at this point, um, which they numbered 69 and 70, uh, which were the agonists with the highest selectivity for those 2A receptors over the 2B and even 2C receptors. So you're having a little bit more uh, increased selectivity and decreased uh, activation at the 2B and 2C receptors, which again, very important. Um, these molecules, uh, just to mention, had a comparable efficacy to other agonists, uh, such as psilocin. Um, and psilocin is sort of the active uh, form of psilocybin, so magic mushrooms. Yeah. Uh, so this has been a lot of uh, chemistry and yeah. <laughs> a lot of like science talk. We're trying to break it down as like simplified as possible. And before we get into behavioral results, which is more 
of kind of our specialty uh where i just want to briefly talk about the cryo em stuff Mm -hmm. because i think it just really highlights the importance of how these compounds dock and how these experiments to determine how the drug is interacting with the receptor are like super important so Using the model of the serotonin-2A receptor, they looked at how these new molecules might fit inside the receptor. And they found that the interactions between specifically uh, the compound number 69, uh, how it interacted with this receptor actually contained a lot of the key elements that other serotonin-2A agonists that we know and love have. Um, But one thing I thought was really cool is that they were able to note that there was no hydrogen bond interaction observed with uh, specific orthosteric site residues, so amino acid residues within the receptor. Um, and some of these are key for LSD binding. So despite LSD kind of being the, the parent compound that this all started from, this now um, optimized agonist, right, doesn't even bind the same way as LSD. So mm-hmm. tweaking tiny aspects of molecules and their chemical structure ultimately changes the way it interacts with the other proteins and eventually in changes the effects that it produces. Yeah. And so earlier I mentioned that a bunch of these drugs had different confirmations and different orientations. And that's where, you know, this becomes key because if you have the perfect molecule that can fit perfectly, but it's in the wrong confirmation or it's in the wrong orientation, right? Like the littlest change changes the way it interacts with, with everything. So any tiny little tweak or whatever, just to highlight Elena's point. Um, okay, so now what did they find? So, okay, we're testing new drugs, right, um, that are active at the 5-HT2A receptor. And one of the big things here is we want to um, have something that maybe isn't, uh, doesn't have hallucinogenic activity. So we're doing this in vivo in mice, in animals. What are we going to test? The head twitch response. <laughs> Yay, very exciting. Um, so just a quick, I don't know if we mentioned the head twitch response yet. Elena's going to do a beautiful, beautiful episode um, in a little bit, uh, in a few weeks, probably, um, that's going to talk about the head twitch response at depth. So I'm just going to quickly give you guys um, a buffer. Uh, so that the head twitch response refer is like, I think the only validated method for confirming drug, psychedelic drug onboarding in vivo in mice and rats, I would say in rodents. Um, and the head twitch response is this like crazy fast, high frequency head shake side to side the, that these animals do. And it seems to be um, its association with activation at the 5-HT2A receptor. And if you're seeing animals uh, head twitch response at a significantly increased rate, it's likely that they're having some sort of aberration in their sensory motor, uh, in their sensory world, in their sensory motor world, having to do with the drug that they just took. Um, so they tested uh, this drug, the, the 69 and the 70, um, in the, with the head twitch response, and they found that 69 and 70 did not have significantly increased head twitch responses as compared to LSD. Um, and then they co-administered these drugs with LSD and found that the level of head twitches that you would normally see with LSD, which are pretty high, uh, were attenuated. They were less when you co-administered with 69 and 70. So what does that tell us? So that tells us that these drugs are likely competitively binding at these 5-HT2A receptors, right? Um, And they don't have hallucinogenic activity. So they're decreasing the overall level of head twitch responses, even though LSD is on board. So there is going to be elevated head twitch response. Which Um, I found that really interesting because 
um, in their other assays, they'd show that it wasn't an antagonist per se. So this is kind of getting more at like a competition of binding. Exactly. Exactly. So, it, exactly. so it's not having, you know, like, like antagonist like effects. It's simply now occupying, maybe displacing some of those, some of that LSD or occupying receptors that the LSD hadn't bound to. And it's decreasing that overall rate of head twitch, right? Because now there's less LSD to bind. Um, or LSD has been displaced. Um, and these drugs don't might these these head twitch, head twitch response experiments suggest that these drugs do not have hallucinogenic activity. So that's like their for uh, their one of their big findings, right? So 69, 70 check, no hallucinogenic activity. Um, so another task, another uh, assay that they used is the prepulse inhibition. Um, and this is a model of psychosis and two way activation in mice. Um, and what this measures is also some sensory motor uh, gating sort of mechanism. So, you know what? I'm going to let Elena explain this. She explained this to me earlier, <laughs> and it was a beautiful explanation. She's our behavioral pharmacologist. If you could explain the task for us quick, Elena. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's funny. Uh, so, basically, pre-pulse inhibition is getting at how a pre-pulse, so uh, a stimulation or a noise. So, if I do, like, a quiet, like banging noise but then I come in and do a really loud one like ah um, you're gonna be less surprised at the big noise because there was a pre-pulse of a smaller amplitude of noise essentially yeah. and so um yeah so basically yeah. pre-pulse inhibition if you're inhibiting the effects of that of that startle response of yeah. being startled by that bigger stimuli um, so again, so this just goes back to this is talking, this is looking at probing some of those sensory changes that might be occurring. Uh, so with LSD, they found that um, there's less sensory motor gating, right? And and that that makes sense to us because LSD has hallucinogenic activity. So you're having aber aberrations in your sensory experience and your sensory motor experience. But with these other two compounds, there was no effect in the PPI. And this suggests that there aren't any aber aberrant sensory motor changes occurring. Um, so again, these first uh, couple of findings tell us that these drugs don't have hallucinogenic activity, although they are active at the 5-HT2A receptor. So functionally active at the 5-HT2A receptor, but not having any hallucinogenic activity. Yeah, and this isn't the first time we've seen a compound like that. So there's yeah. a compound called lyceride, yep. uh, which also activates serotonin 2A receptor and I think is used for treatment of migraines, maybe. I um, think so, yeah. And so, yeah, interestingly, our the Mazo lab has shown um, the differences between receptor activation and how, it, you know, that is causing differences in, like, pathway signaling to cause hallucinations and whatnot. So... Yeah, maybe one day we'll do a journal club on that paper. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it, it would be a great paper to do. Um, but yeah, so based off of those results, they wanted to then take these drugs into models of antidepressant effects uh, in animals. So yeah. they're using mice here, and they have um, what I thought was a nice model. They use a stress model, which I'm not going to get too much into, but uh, it's basically when they have a genetically uh, modified animal that compared to non-genetically modified animals they they have a depressive like phenotype in yeah so uh and we'll get into like what that kind of means so the two things i really liked about this is that they did use a stress model they didn't just do you know these assays in naive mice. 
Yeah. Um, and then I also like that they normalized uh, their results to those of well-known antidepressants um, as well. So that's something to think about. Instead of normalizing to a vehicle control, they normalize their data. Which yeah, is which is the- interesting. That's that's also a very like a different technique. Like you you usually don't see that in work. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, right. That was pretty cool. Yeah. So basically, the first thing they did was test the effects of the two compounds um, in a model of learned helplessness. Learned helplessness. Helplessness. <laughs> it's tough. Ridiculous. Okay. Um, yeah. So learned helplessness. Silly. It's interesting because there is like a lot of debate in the field, right? But learned helplessness is basically like they have they're in a situation that they're struggling in or it's not happy and it's not good and they've kind of just given up on trying to get out of that situation right like they've decided that um there's no way that they're going to come out of this so they're sort of it's it's learned helplessness is because they've taught themselves to be passive and like this is it my life is now struggle which is so incredibly sad but um yeah so it it can be seen as um a model of of these uh depressive like phenotypes but on the other hand and I don't know Elena if you've heard of this but it's it some people suggest that this might just be the mice are learning that it's it's not useful to struggle and and um expend like energy so if it's an adaptive thing right it's so interesting with behavioral pharmacology especially in rodents like that but anyway learn helplessness okay so they use um things like force swim tests and tail suspension tests so This is a way to measure uh, how they're reacting, right, to being in an uncomfortable situation. So the time spent immobile is what is mainly being measured. And so they looked at responses to the administration of their two compounds and other drugs at 30 minutes and 24 hours after administration. And they found that uh, there was enhanced immobility in the mutant mice uh, and then when they gave administration of common antidepressants or their novel compounds, the immobility time was similar to the wild type vehicle controlled mice up to 24 hours. So this is basically just suggesting that these two compounds potentially are, have antidepressant like actions. Um, And then they looked at some other stuff too. So they wanted to see if these effects were mediated through the serotonin 2A or 2C receptor uh, due to it being selective or these compounds being selective for them. And they found that interestingly, both of the antagonists decreased immobility on their own. So they couldn't really find any conclusive results. So that's kind of still up in the air. So yeah. I thought that was, I'm glad they included that. Yeah, for sure. Um, One other thing that they did was look at foot shock experiments. And this is another type of learned helplessness. So they assigned mice to a foot shock or a non-foot shock condition, trained them, and then gave either um, like a saline control, the compound. uh, They just used 70 for this one because they ran out (laughs) of the other one. And so they compare the the compound 70 to psilocin or ketamine. And they tested uh, for sucrose preference, immobility time, and escape behaviors in a foot shock uh, condition. And so what they found was that um, sucrose preference in the foot shock mice was diminished in vehicle controls um, versus the group that got the 70 compound or psilocin groups. And so they found that there was immediate antidepressant-like effects um, and they persisted up to three days 
for both the psilocin and the compound in question. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I found that um, under the foot shock condition, the immobility time was high in vehicle controls relative to the 70 group, and that persisted up to day 14. Yeah, so basically they report that this the 70 compound was efficacious in decreasing immobility time. And when they looked at, you know, psilocin and ketamine, those were also efficacious on days one and four, but psilocin was the longest lasting one at day nine versus, you know, R70 was up to 14 days, but so. Okay, so that's super cool. Um, So in all of those stress models, it seems that there is some antidepressant activity, right, of, of, this these drugs 69 and 70 um and then tying that in with the earlier findings and there's no hallucinogenic activity um so this paper even though we kind of summed it up in two big sort of result sections having to do with um hallucinogenic activity and antidepressant effects um this was a really big and very comprehensive paper they did a ton of assays um but there are some important things that we always need to consider um, and one of those things is, again, there's always more assays that can be done. So although that there, there is evidence for antidepressant activity of these two drugs, um, perhaps there should be more testing done and more assays in, in different conditions. They also mentioned that synthesis of these drugs is a little bit difficult um, in a lab setting. And, and they talk about all of the reasons why it is uh, a little bit more in depth and a little bit more than I understand. But some important caveats to remember, right? There's always more comprehensive testing to be done and you cannot rule out uh, the the contributions from other receptor subtypes and, and sort of other systems when you're looking at one system um, in particular. But other than that, um, you know, this was a pretty amazing paper. It was huge. Um, I encourage everyone to go look at it and take a sort of crack at it. Um, it was personally difficult for me. I don't know, Lena, if it was for you. I'm not a big chemistry person. Um, but this was a nice sort of uh, dive into that. And I think a really, really good addition um, into the field and just making our literature a little bit more rich. Yeah, I, yeah, like you said, I think this is like a monster of a paper, right? It's, yeah. <laughs> it's great. Um, and I, I wanted to highlight in the, you know, things to think about. I haven't dug deep into the methods of like how many mice they used or, you know, they use males and females, but those are things just to consider, um, you know, when you're reading. And then I know we mentioned when we were talking about the, um, how to like understand science articles and just other things that you could, should kind of look for. And I don't know, Zarmin, did you look at the ethics declaration or competing interests for this one? Oh, no, I did not. Oh, my goodness. I didn't even listen to our own. <laughs> I just looked at it. So I was gonna say, um, well, like, like we mentioned, when we were first talking about this, right, is that it's good to know, but it doesn't always necessarily mean there's like some nefarious activity going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. So sure. for this one is a good example, right? So they discovered using all these crazy methods, these new THP agnes. So they um, filed a patent for them perfectly reasonable right mm-hmm. like um and then there's just some other stuff like some of them have founded different um you know companies or uh different like, yeah yeah so it's just keeping in mind they have a, a monetary stake in psychedelia which you know what at this point i'm i'm thinking who doesn't gonna, yeah exactly that's exactly <laughs> what I'm gonna say. yeah um yeah so just being thoughtful about it and 
you know, it's just, it's really cool. This work is really cool. And I did have trouble, like you said, um, when I was reading through all this. So one thing I'm actually working on because I actually come from a physiology lab. So very cool. (laughs) A lot of GPCR stuff and a lot of binding and calcium. And so I'm getting better at knowing this because I am a behavioral pharmacologist, but I do I'm surrounded by this stuff too. So it's really important for me to understand it, especially as it pertains to like my work in the future. So um, reading papers like this is helping me figure it all out. So I hope that us talking about it is helping somebody else figure it all out. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Really cool. I'm really glad that we did this paper today. Um, Let us know what you guys think. uh, If you like these journal clubs, I mean, even if you guys don't, we're going to do some more because I think they're fun. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. um, yeah, but thank you guys for listening. Um, and please interact with us on our social media. And we have that new form. If you guys want to be featured, if you have ideas, if you have research that you want to, would like to talk about, please go to our website, psychedelicbrainscience.com um, and fill out a form under the contact us tab. But other than that, it was great talking to you guys. I hope you guys had a good time listening to us. Um, thanks so much, Elena, as always. Uh, and please tune in for the next episode. <laughs> Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Next time, we're going to be talking about structure, function, and how it pertains to tryptamines. So stay tuned.